Well, hey, church family, are you excited to be here today? It's a great day, right? It's an awesome day to be at church. I'm just pumped to be here. Uh, God is here, which is pretty awesome, and we get amazing moments like this where we get to come and we get to worship God, and it's one of the coolest things we get to do on earth. And uh, I, I just love gathering together to worship, um, and, and I was just thinking what a privilege that is that we get to do this together. Last, last Sunday, uh, I was joining you from Nebraska, so that was pretty awesome, was doing a little family trip in Colorado, Nebraska, and it was so cool worshiping online. I don't know if you've done that, but you can actually hear the voices. So I don't know how they get all the voices and they put them through the TV, but you guys rock, and it was so fun to worship together. And, and I just think it's such a privilege to be in this space, to worship God. It, it's really amazing as we worship we can actually begin to be overwhelmed with the presence of God. We get to encounter Him in powerful ways, and there's really nothing like it in the world. In fact, uh, David says in one of the Psalms, he says, um, better is one day in the presence of God than a thousand elsewhere. Do you echo that, church family, today? I mean, it really is amazing just to gather, to be together in the presence of God. And, and I'm just thinking about my life. Some of the best moments in my life have been times of worship. I don't know if you've experienced that in your own life. And uh, I, usually, I usually shy away from saying the best moment when my wife is here because I always want to say our wedding day was the best moment of my life. Uh, but in fact, on our wedding day, we got married and the very first thing we did as man and wife was worship God together. And so I really do love to worship. It's one of my favorite things. And, um, and we're really made for this. We're made to worship God. And uh, I actually, um, I even play a little bit of worship guitar. You know, some of you guys probably don't know that. Uh, you don't need to know that because I really have no talent for that. Um, but I am a little bit of a worship wannabe. Uh, I, I just want to be in worship and uh, however I can do that. Uh, but I also have to confess that I'm a bit of a guitar wannabe as well. And um, I am very aware that some of the best guitars in the world are just made down the road in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, the Bible says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I would say, yes, Martin Guitars and Jesus. And both are pretty amazing. Uh, I, I've said it before, if you haven't toured the factory, I highly recommend it. Um, it is really amazing. Whether you play the guitar or not, it's a fabulous experience. And I was just thinking about some of the tours that I've taken around here in Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've done some of the tours um, but a lot of the tours kind of leave, leave you at a distance. So maybe you go to Crayola, which is a ton of fun, or you've been to the Turkey Hill ice cream place, which uh, is just awesome. You know, you get to make your own ice cream and all of that. Uh, but the amazing thing about those experiences is that um, it's an experience, and you never actually get onto the factory floor. Um, when you go to the Martin Guitar Factory Tour, you get on the factory floor. Floor. You get side by side with the artisans who are making the guitars. You get to see from start to finish how these beautiful guitars are made. And it really is incredible. Maybe one of the coolest things about the tour, though, is at the very end, they have a, a small private room. And it's called the, the Pickin' Parlor. I guess if you pick. Um, and, and they have some very limited and high-end guitars that you can play. You can go into this private room and just pick up guitars 
worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And I gotta tell you, I, I take those guitars off the wall with trembling hands. You know, when you see the price tag and you're like, you know, have I died and gone to guitar heaven? You know, somebody pinched me because I'm like in guitar glory. And, and if you can understand that, if you can understand a tour where you go from the parking lot to the factory to a private room, you can actually begin to understand Old Testament worship where you went from the outer court to the sanctuary to the Holy of Holies. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that helps us understand how we can actually draw near to God through Jesus Christ. For those of you who are just joining us, we're in a series here at Hope on the book of Hebrews. Today we're in Hebrews 9. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bible or Bible app, you can turn over to Hebrews 9. And uh, Hebrews 9 is a pretty cool passage because our author is going to give us a little factory tour of Old Testament worship. And uh, you, I want you to remember um, a little bit of the context. Our author is writing to Hebrew Christians. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish Christians, and they're under some pressure now to, um, to, to really let go of their Christian faith. And because of pressure, they're thinking about abandoning Jesus. They're thinking about going back to this Old Testament way of worship, which really was a live temptation for them. You have to understand that at the time Hebrews was written, there was a temple standing, most likely, and they would have been very tempted to go back to that old way of worship, especially with some of the, the pressure that they were feeling to walk away from Jesus. And so our author is going to say, all right, you're thinking about going back to to worshiping God at the temple. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it was like to worship under the old covenant. And so today we're going to take a little tour of that Old Testament sanctuary in Hebrews 9. And actually, uh, some of you out there today, you, you might want to actually take another tour in Pennsylvania of the life-size replica of the Old Testament tabernacle. How, anybody done that before? Isn't that pretty awesome? Right? It's going to bring to life some of the things we're going to talk about today. So I highly recommend that tour as well. So Martin Guitars, um, Crayola, uh, Hers, throw that in there. I haven't done that one yet, but I do love potato chips. So um, there's a lot of great tours. But today we're touring the Old Testament sanctuary. And we're remembering that these believers in Hebrews 9 are tempted to go back to this old way of worship. And our author is going to say, are you sure you want to go back to that? Because, because if you go back to this, you're not going to get very close to God. The Old Testament worship kept people at a distance. So you want to go back to that? You're not going to get to the private room. You're not going to get to the factory floor. You're going to be left at a distance. Now that you have Jesus, why would you want to go back to that? See, the earthly sanctuary, what we're going to see in Hebrews 9 is that that earthly sanctuary never really got us to the heavenly reality. But it pointed us to Jesus, who is the one who gets there. He gets us to the holy of holies. He gets us into the very presence of God. And that's what I'm excited to share with you about today. Because what scripture says in Psalm 16, it says that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Anybody use a little bit of that today? 
And in the Lord's presence is the fullness of joy. Not fear, not shame, joy, fullness of joy. It doesn't come from your circumstances. It comes from the presence of God in your life. It is a never-ending stream of his goodness and blessing and on the table for us today. If we'll understand how to draw near into the presence of God. So that's what, that's what I want to talk with you about today. The old way of worship doesn't get us there, but Jesus will. And I want to show you how. So let's pray. Um, we're going to dive into Hebrews 9. It's a bit of a long passage. We're going to get into some deep theology again. Are you guys okay? You guys ready for some theology today? I want to get you into some theology. And uh, we're going to have some fun doing it. So let's pray. And we'll kind of read through and um, unpack it as we go. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather in Jesus' name. Um, thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, who helps us to draw near with full assurance. And I pray that we would do that today. I pray that we would understand at a deeper level um, what's happened in the cross so that we can truly live in your presence moment by moment. Help us to see how Jesus is better, which is the theme of our series. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with the Old Testament and how people worshiped in the Old Testament. We'll do a little, little tour. I'll be your tour guide today. My name is Brian. It's great to be with you. And then we're going to see how the Old Testament worship points to what we have in Jesus. Um, and, and you have this the Old Testament is the shadow. Jesus is re the reality. I think we're, we're talking a little bit about that in Hebrews. So what do we see? We'll give you this headline. Worship in the Old Testament left people at a distance. If I could kind of give you a summary of Old Testament worship, it left people at a distance. Uh, it, it kept people from drawing close to an awesome and holy God. Take a look at this description of the tabernacle, which is the sanctuary for worship. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. This is what it says. Now the first covenant, what's the first covenant? That's the Old Testament covenant. The first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. We're getting our tour. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold, ar the gold ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. And so he's actually describing Old Testament worship. And if you want to read more about it, you can go back to the book of Exodus. This is where God gives Moses instructions how to set up the sanctuary. This is all God's plan. This, is not, this was not man's idea. God created the blueprint for the tabernacle. He gave it to Moses, and Moses set it up exactly according to God's plan. And God comes to Moses. He says, Moses, make me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And that dwelling place first was a tent, tabernacle, it moved around, and then it was a permanent sanctuary. 
But the idea here is that God wants to dwell among his people. That's what the tabernacle is all about. So let's go ahead and put up the graphic. So here's a little picture of what the tabernacle uh, might have looked like. The tabernacle, as described here in Hebrews or in the book of Exodus, has two rooms. It has an outer room and it has an inner room. As you come through the curtain, if, I should say, if you ever had the privilege of going through that curtain, you would come into the outer room. And the outer room is called the holy place. And in the holy place, there are two pieces of furniture. There's a lampstand covered with gold. And there's a table also covered with gold. And it was the job of the priest to go in and to make sure that the lamp was always burning and there was bread always on the table, which, which I just love. You know, the light's on and there's food on the table. So what does that tell you? It tells you someone's at home, doesn't it? God is here. God is at home. This is his house. He's dwelling here. In the back of the, the holy place, there was another curtain. And on the other side of that curtain was a small private room that was called the most holy place. And smoke from that burning altar of incense would have filled the most holy place. And, ha you know, for those who had the privilege of walking behind that second curtain, um, you know, on that very rare occasion, they would come into this smoke-filled room. And before you would have been one piece of furniture, an ark covered in gold, glistening as the smoke filled the room with the two cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. And between those two outstretched wings in awesome majesty was the radiant splendor of the glory of God. It was something called the Shekinah glory of God. And the author says, I can't talk much more about this. I'd love to. can't describe this in detail now. But guys, the reality is, when you look at this sanctuary, very few people ever got to enter that sanctuary. Isn't that kind of crazy? Because worship in the Old Testament kept most worshipers at a distance. Take a look at verse 6. The author continues. Who got to go into the sanctuary? Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, excuse me, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, that's the inner room where God's presence is, the way into that holy, holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as that first tabernacle was still functioning. And he says, this is an illustration. It's an illustration at the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All right, so let's bound a little bit. Who gets to enter the place of worship? What does it say? The priest, right? Verse 6, the priest. 
Many people came to worship God at the tabernacle. Very few ever entered the sanctuary. Oh, you have the priests who would kind of perform their daily duties in that outer sanctuary. They would keep the lights burning and keep the food on the table. It's kind of the factory. But very, very, very few ever went behind the veil into the most holy place of all. Who got to enter the most holy place of all? The high priest, right? One priest, the high priest. Only once a year. Think about that. One person, one time a year, and it says, not without blood. The high priest would bring blood on a very special day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. One day a year, the high priest would go behind that second veil to the holy place of all. At first for his own sins. And then, and only then, for the sins of the people. And the author says, I think the Holy Spirit's trying to tell us something. I think you look at this system where so many sacrifices are being offered and so few people are getting close to God. He says, I think the Holy Spirit's showing us something. I think he's showing us that the way into the most holy place of all hasn't been opened. I think we're waiting for something else. I think this is an illustration of something yet to come. In other words, you have all these sacrifices and they're not getting it done. Look at verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It's not getting it done. It's just a matter of food and drink and ceremonies and regulations, it says, until the time Jesus comes. We need a better sacrifice. And it's all pointing us to Jesus, and Jesus is going to get it done. You guys see what I'm saying? Worship kept people at a distance in the Old Testament. So here we have people, letter to the Hebrews, under pressure thinking maybe we should go back to this. And the author's saying, hold on, hold on, let's talk about that. Let's do a quick tour. That Old Testament worship led a lot of people, left a lot of people at a distance. It, it, how many of you have a picture from a few weeks ago? This is that massive cargo ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. And I love this picture. I love the, the tiny little excavator. I'm like, I'm like rooting for you. You know, you can do this, little buddy. <laughs> He's got a lot of work ahead of him. Uh, my dad always said, you need the right tool for the right job. So I'm not an in engineer, but I think it's pretty apparent that's not the right tool for that job. <laughs> so um, I love this picture. I think it's hilarious. And you got the little excavator trying to free the biggest ship in the world. So when you guys think about your sin, and when I think about my sin, and when we think about the Old Testament, and those animal sacrifices, I want you to think of this picture, because this is a great picture. Um, why didn't all those Old Testament sacrifices work? And think about that tiny excavator, because our sin really is a massive deal to God. God is not like us. He is holy. He is righteous, right? And, and standing between us and a holy God is this massive thing called sin, our sin separates us from God. It keeps us from accessing the very presence of God. 
And so here we have this huge thing standing in our way. I think we sang earlier, the wages of sin is death. And so we have this big problem. And what's going to set us free? A little sheep? Some farm animals? No, we need the right tool for the right job. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free. And, and I just, you know, Scott Menon, he's going to show us next week, Hebrews 10.4, says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he'll explain that a little more. But it's kind of like, it, it's as impossible as a tiny little excavator trying to free the world's largest ship. It just can't be done. We need something better. Hebrews says we need Jesus because Jesus sets us free from the ship. Jesus gives us that unhindered access to God. And so here's, here's what I want to say today. Worship in the Old Testament kept people at a distance. But worship in Jesus brings us close. Jesus frees the ship. He takes it away once and for all so that you and I can live our lives in the very glory of God, in his presence every single day. Worship in Jesus brings us close. How does, how does that happen? We're going to look a little bit at the nuts and bolts, but, but I want to summarize it for us. And that's the rest of chapter 9. Let me summarize it for you. And I like how, how Steve did this a little bit last week. Jesus brings us a better blood to a better sanctuary with a better result. So that's kind of the summary. Jesus brings us a better blood to a better sanctuary with a better result. So let's start with the first one. Jesus brings a better blood. Look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. It's outward. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Okay, as we read Hebrews 9, it's going to talk a lot about blood. So I hope you're ready for it. There's blood all over the place. And I don't know how well you handle blood. I don't handle blood very well. Um, I remember as a teenager doing driver's ed, and... Um, being a teenager, you know, they want to scare you into making good choices. So they showed us a little film about, you know, young people who drank too much on prom night and they got into these horrible accidents. And so they're, they're showing this film, and I think it must have been called, um, you know, Blood on Prom Night Part 4 or, you know, something like that. And, and I'm watching this film, and I'm, it's just like bloody picture after blood, bloody picture after. And next thing I know, like, everything goes black. And I hear people laughing. Turns out I completely passed out. <laughs> I was on the floor, locked up in my desk, and the entire classroom is just laughing at me. So I don't handle blood very well. I don't know if you handle blood very well. Um, didn't survive blood on prom night part four. 
But I want you to think about our faith and how much blood is a part of our faith. Have you ever thought about that before? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Um, we, we talk about being washed in the blood. That's kind of a gruesome thought, isn't it? Being washed in the blood. We're going to have communion here in a little bit. Jesus says, this cup is the blood. And then he says, drink it. Think about that. We sing a lot of songs about blood. Nothing but the blood. There's power in the blood. There's an old hymn. There's a fountain full of blood. It's not just a little blood, it's a fountain of blood. At some point, you got to go, what's up with all the blood? I know I've asked that question. Remember the high priest, once a year, he goes into the holiest place of all, the place of God's presence, and he brings with him the blood of a sacrifice, first for the forgiveness of his sins, and then for the, the forgiveness of the people. And Jesus does something no high priest ever done, has done. He enters, not without the blood of a sacrifice, he enters with his very own blood. Was there ever a high priest who entered the holiest place of all with his own blood? Never. And that's what Jesus did for us. He shed his precious blood on a cross for our sins. He hung there, bleeding and dying, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. And every time I see that cross, I'm reminded of the greatness of my, of my sin, and I'm reminded of the greatness of his, his love. Oh, precious is the blood. His blood has set us free. All the Sacrifices of animals year after year after year after year never got it done. But the blood of Jesus does what no other blood could do. It says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? The conscience refers to removing sins from the heart. How beautiful is that? The animals, they just cleansed us outwardly, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us down deep all the way to the sins of our heart. Once and for all, removing those sins so that we may serve the living God. How amazing is that? Jesus brings a better blood. He brings his own blood. Perfect, spotless blood of a lamb. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. How amazing. Jesus brings his blood, like the high priest, into a better sanctuary. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest, would take the blood of a sacrifice, carry it with him into the most holy place, and sprinkle it before the presence of to atone for the sins of the people. Did Jesus ever enter a man-made sanctuary? Did Jesus ever go in the temple, walk right in? The holy? No. He never entered. Think about that. He never entered a man-made temple. He actually did something much better than that is what our author is saying. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. 
So there's an earthly tabernacle, and there's a greater, more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. The idea is repeated later in verse 24. Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with hands. That was only a copy of the true one. This is shadow on earth. Heaven is reality. He entered then itself with his blood, now to appear for us in God's presence. That's amazing. Jesus brings his blood into the very presence of God, appearing on our behalf for us, leading the way for us. See, when Jesus died, he didn't enter an earthly tabernacle. He did something that had never been done before. He entered into heaven itself, the heavenly sanctuary, entering the most holy place of God, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. Better blood, a better sanctuary, and look at the results. Jesus creates a better result. He brings a new covenant, a new relationship with God. Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So this is heavy, heavy stuff, right? We're getting deep into what Jesus did for us. What did Jesus do for us? Set us free from sin. He set you free from sin. He set me free so that we could have an eternal, eternal inheritance. Those of you who have received an inheritance... How do you receive an inheritance? Somebody has to die, right? And that's the truth of what Jesus did for us. For us to experience a new life, that relationship with God, that eternal inheritance, somebody had to die. Look at verse 19. Or I'm sorry, verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is only enforced when somebody has died. A will is what lists the inheritance. And somebody has to die for that inheritance to take effect. It's only enforced when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So it takes blood to make a covenant. And there are two covenants. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. And first he talks about the old covenant, the old way of relating to God, the new way of relating to God. First the old, verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. That's a lot of blood. He's like sprinkling things with blood, you know? I mean, this is how the covenant was made, with blood. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Isn't that what Jesus said later at communion? This is the blood of the covenant? We're going to get there. Which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle, everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Can I repeat that last line one more time? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Have you ever wondered, why can't God just forgive us? Can he just forgive? Could God forgive us without Jesus having to die on the cross? 
The answer is no. It's impossible because God is just. Because of God's justice, right? sin cannot be overlooked. Every sin must be accounted for. And so the question is, who's going to pay? The wages of sin is death. Who's going to pay? It's either me or him. It's either my life or the life of Jesus. Because of who God is, because he is holy and righteous and perfect and just, he cannot just say, it's all forgiven. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Because of who God is, because of his holiness, his righteousness. Verse 23 says, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for who? For us. He went to heaven itself for us with his blood to appear in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood, not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. So guys, can we just soak this in as we come here to the end? Jesus entered heaven. He brought his own blood and it says he's done away with sin. And that means that we can have confidence today that every one of our sins, past, present, and future, has not just been covered, not just temporarily atoned for. Our sin has been washed away. We have eternal forgiveness. It is an eternal, everlasting release. That's the power of the blood. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. Every sin washed away because of the blood of Jesus. And I just want to soak that in today. Verse 27, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It's a great reminder. People are destined to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to face judgment. So the question is, who do you want to bear your sin? Is it, is it me or him? And today I just want to say, him. Take it. Take it all, Jesus. With your perfect sacrifice on the cross. It says that Jesus is coming again, and he's going to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. What does it mean to wait for, for him, but to trust in him? And so I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. He came, he paid the price, he takes away our sins, and he gives us access to the very presence of God. What is salvation? But the full experience of heaven itself, the glory of God, and the intimacy of a relationship with our creator who loves us. So Jesus brings a better blood to a better sanctuary with a better result. It's a great day to believe in Jesus, isn't it, church? It's a great day. You know, I, I shared earlier um, how David said in the Psalms, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He only made it to the courts. Because of Jesus, we get to go to the Holy of Holies. 
And in my life, I've found that there are access points where we can experience God's presence in powerful ways. Worship is one of those access points. Have you ever been overwhelmed with God's presence just in times of worship? I have. Reading scripture, it's an access point. Your eyes are open to the majesty of who God is and the wonder of his love. Prayer is an access point. Communion is an access point. 